0: 1 Corinthians 15, says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's a very familiar verse. Um, we, we, We say it a lot, we quote it a lot, we use it a lot. Um, but to get a better understanding of the meaning of this verse, we need to kind of back up and take a, a quick look at chapter 15 in the whole, so we can get a better picture of what cha- uh, verse 58 is actually meaning, the, the, why verse 58 is there. And when I, uh, I think about therefore, um, when I was in Bible college, I had a, a Bible teacher that always said, always tell us he's our Bible doctrines teacher, he always said, when you come across a therefore in the Bible, ask yourself what it's there for. So when you see a therefore, ask yourself what it's there for. And uh, I remember this uh, my, this Bible teacher. Uh, he was from the same small town my dad was from in Tennessee. They're both from Bryceville, Tennessee. And so after just a few weeks of uh, uh, Bible college, we figured that out. So we got to talk and it comes out our grandmothers used to quilt together and, you know, things like that. So it was kind of neat. And he used to use he used to say things slightly different and kind of give a different different uh, way. He explained things and all that. And to me, I got it right away. That's how my dad would say stuff. You know, they're from the same tiny little town in Appalachian Mountains. So I, I got it right away. I grew up used to listening to those Examples and how that that way of speech, but everyone else would kind of like what was he talking about but i I got it right away. it sounded great to me, but so um but he would always say. Therefore, when you come across a verse that says, therefore, ask yourself what is therefore, then figure it out. Usually that means you've got to back up. You've got to back up and reread the chapter you just read, or reread that paragraph or that thought, and come back down to that therefore. Then you'll grab, you'll grasp what that therefore is therefore. So let's go back up and look at verses 3 and 4. Let's read verses 3 and 4 real quick, as soon as I can turn to them. Verse 3 says, For I, de, for I delivered unto you the first, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So we're seeing here that the resurrection is the essential part of the gospel message. That's part of why that therefore is therefore. It's part of why Paul was telling us to do that. It's part of why Paul is telling us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding. He wants us to know that the resurrection is essential to the gospel message. Now as you go down to verses 12, verses 12 through 14, and then we're going to read verse 17. It says, Now if Christ be preached... That he rose from the dead. How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also in vain. Then go down to verse 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. So we see here in these verses, we see if Christ is not raised from the dead, he cannot save anyone, and our faith is in vain. So very important, the resurrection of Christ. We're getting a, a theme here. Christ's resurrection is very important. Going on to verses 20 to 22. It says, But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ Shall all be made alive. So we see here the resurrection is proof of Christ's deity, proof of Christ's power. We need the resurrection. Resurrection is the essential part of the gospel message. Resurrection is proof of Christ's deity, proof of Christ's power. Now let's go to look at verse 34. This is a convicting verse. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Is it, this verse is admonishing us to get busy, to get to the work of winning souls for Christ. Some have not knowledge of this. Some have not knowledge of God. Some have knowledge of God rolls on. Some are not saved. He's admonishing us, I speak this to your shame. You should be out there trying to win them. You should be out there trying to invite them to church, witnessing to them, telling them about telling about your Lord, inviting your friends, your family, your neighbors. He says, I say this to your shame, some have not the knowledge of God. Now let's look at verses forty two through forty four. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. This is telling us we have a mortal body now. But if we are saved one day, we're going to have that perfect body, that resurrection body, that glorified body. We're going to have that perfect body someday. We have that mortal body now, we're going to have that perfect body someday. Now look at verses 51 to 52. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The rapture, resurrection body, speaking of the rapture. Now look at verse 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? It teaches us that if we are saved, death is not going to have the final victory over us. That Jesus already got that settled for us. We don't have to worry about that. Death is not going to have the final victory over yeah. us. Now we've looked back, we've kind of reviewed Chapter 15, real quickly, but now we can get a better idea of what that therefore is there for. Now we can get more excited about verse 58. It's not just a familiar verse anymore. We kind of get the thought, the theme, the emphasis of why it's there. It is there to highlight all this that he just talked about. The resurrection, Christ's deity, Christ's power, the rapture, admonishing us to witness to people, bring them to Christ, invite them to church. All that is therefore Now with all that in mind, let's reread verse 58 again. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Because of all I just taught you, Apostle Paul is saying, because of these previous 57 verses, therefore I want you to be verse 58. Therefore I want you to live out verse 58. I want you to apply verse 58 to your life. Because all I've just taught you, these previous 57 verses, all tie in to this one verse, all culminate in this one verse, all go to support this one verse. This one verse kind of ties it all together and says, because of all of this, be ye steadfast, Amen. unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He's teaching us when you see a therefore, find out what is therefore and apply that to your life. So how do we live out verse 58? How do we live out verse 58? First, first thing which you know is it's steadfast. We need to be steadfast in our faith. This is like a mental and spiritual response to circumstances, being steadfast. Steadfast is the ability and determination to stay faithful in the midst of evil influences and circumstances. Um, circumstances of peer pressure, either at work or at school, staying steadfast in that, not, not caving into that, not going into that direction, that direction of that, that sin they're trying to pull you into. Steadfast would be off-color jokes at work or at school. You hear them not laughing at them, staying away from them, not participating in them, asking, hey, don't say that around me, I don't want to hear it, you know, and then pretty soon they're going to respect that, they're, going to, they're just not going to, you know, pretty soon they're going to apologize if it slips around you, because they know you've already asked them, hey, I don't want to hear that, I don't want any part of that, you know, they will start, hopefully start to respect that. So resisting the peer pressure of off-color jokes at work, at school. Temptation, staying steadfast in temptation. My pastor's message, stay steadfast in temptation. This morning it tied in a lot of what I was talking about. Resist that temptation. You resist it, Lord give you strength to go on to resist it. So staying steadfast in temptations. Storms are trials of life, that's tough. Staying steadfast in the faith when you're having a trial, a storm, a problem in your life. Staying steadfast in that. Being steadfast is staying faithful, no matter our circumstances. Philippians 4.11 says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned, in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Steadfast, staying faithful in circumstances. When I was thinking of this, I thought of Peter. He was not 100% steadfast when he went out to walk on the water to see Jesus. He had the faith, he claimed the faith, he had great faith. And then he saw the storm, saw the waves, saw the water, started losing his faith. He wasn't steadfast in his faith. And what happened? He started sinking. Matthew 14, 30 says that when he saw the wind, boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. He wasn't steadfast in his faith at that moment. But Peter went on to be steadfast in his faith. He went on to be a great example of staying steadfast in your faith. And he went on later to warn us to never waver in our faith. We find that in 2 Peter 317 to 18 Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. He said, beware, lest ye, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. So, Peter is saying, I know what I'm talking about. You know, I fell away from that faith. You know, I know what I'm talking about. Be steadfast. Beware. Be on guard. Be vigilant. Stay steadfast in your faith. Stay steadfast in your faith. So, what's another reason to be steadfast? Well, James warned us. A lack of steadfastness will lead to an unstable life and an unrewarding prayer life. James 1, 6-8 says, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. James is warning us, if you are not steadfast in your faith, you're going to be driven, tossed and thrown like the wind. You're not going to have rewarding prayer life, but you're not going to be steadfast in your faith. So how, how do we become steadfast? How do we become steadfast? Paul tells us in Ephesians that steadfastness comes as we mature spiritually. Ephesians 4, 14-15 tells us that we henceforth, be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sleight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive: but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Be no more children as we grow spiritually, we can grow with our steadfastness. In other words, exercise your faith. Work out your faith. Faith the Lord for the small stuff and your faith will be there for the big stuff. You got to faith the Lord. You got to you got to Put your faith in the Lord for, pray for, you're supposed to be in a constant state of prayer. Faith the Lord for everything. Go to the Lord in everything in prayer. Ask him for everything. you faith the Lord for the small stuff, your faith will be growing for the big stuff. So being steadfast. You want to be steadfast. What's that therefore, therefore? We learned about all the resurrection. We learned about how, how, how God, his death is essential, how his deity, his power, how we need to be out there witnessing for the lost. We need to be steadfast. That's what the therefore is there for, to be steadfast. Another thing I want to point out is we must be unmovable. We must be unmovable. Unmovable from our faith and not moving from certain standards or convictions once we have them. We need to be unmovable in our standards, unmovable in our convictions. How do we be unmovable? How do we become unmovable? We have to have a good anchor to be unmovable. have to set that anchor and determine, come what may, we will not be moved from those from that faith. Come what may, we will not be moved from that standard. Come what may, we will not be moved from that conviction. I don't care if it comes old-fashioned. I don't care if people make fun of me for having that conviction, that standard. I'm not going to be moved from that conviction, from that standard. And we can stay steady and stay on that if we have a good anchor. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19 tells us that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, anchor of the soul. Jesus Christ, our hope, he is the anchor of our soul. He will keep us from, being, he will keep us from moving. He will keep us steadfast. He will keep us unmovable. Amen. He will help us understand what that therefore is there for. We'll be steadfast, we'll be unmovable in our faith. Steadfast, unmovable in our beliefs. Steadfast, unmovable in our convictions. In our standards. We'll be steadfast and unmovable. So what are some things that could move us? What are some things that might move us from our faith? Trials could possibly move us from our faith if we let them. Disappointments could move us from our faith if we let them. Financial difficulties may move us from our faith if we let them. Relationship problems may move us from our faith if we let them. They all could potentially move us from our faith. But remember, our foe is always tirelessly looking for a way to move us from our faith. He's always tirelessly looking for that one thing where we let down our guard. That one thing where we say, "You know, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna do this myself." Like Brother Roy was saying, you know, when we just try to do it ourselves and not trust in God. He's looking for that one thing where we're gonna let down our guard. Our guard. That one thing where we're just going to say, "Hey, I got this." Or you know, this isn't that big of a deal. I'm just going to, I can go ahead and do this myself. He's looking for that one instance, and he's going to get in there. He's going to try. He's going to try to move you from that, your faith, move you from that belief, move you from that standard, move you from that conviction. 1 Peter 5, 8-9 to says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Don't let difficulties move you from your faith. Stay on guard. Your adversary, the devil, is seeking any opportunity, any way in, he can get you to move from that faith. Any way in, he can get you to move from that standard, that conviction. He's trying his best. Stay steadfast. You've got to stay steadfast to keep your guard up. You've got to stay unmovable. determined, to remain unmovable from that belief, from that standard, from that conviction. Don't let yourself be moved. Don't put your guard down. The devil is trying to get in there. So we've looked at some things that we could move us from our faith. Now let's look at some things that we might could just move from on our own. The devil doesn't, doesn't necessarily get us to do those. We just kind of think, hey, we're going to move from this area, from this thing. What are some things people may move away from over time? They move, may move away from standards over time. They move away from convictions over time. What are some examples of these standards of convictions that people may move away from? Music is an example of a standard of conviction people may move away from. I hear this a lot. It has a good message has a good message. I know it's kind of rocky, but the words are good. I hear that a lot. Or you just plain listen to the wrong kind of music that talks about sins of the flesh, talks about things of the world. For instance, I didn't realize this, but uh, a couple years ago, a... One 18, um, not here, but 18 posted something on Facebook that I thought was just credibly wrong, inappropriate to post on Facebook. It was just talking about sinning with someone else on on Facebook, and I just could not believe this was posted. So we we confronted this teen and asked them why they put this on Facebook. What's up with this? What's going on? And they told us, "Oh, it's just a lyric from a song. It's just a song lyric. I didn't really mean that. It's just a song lyric." And so immediately, I'm thinking, "Oh, this is probably..." a rap song. This is, you know, something so I was like you sh- you know you shouldn't be listening that, you know, that rap music, that kind of music. Oh, no, 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 it's a country song. You know, and I'm like, "Wow." You know, so I'm like, "Who is this guy? You know, who's who's put who said this?" So, they gave me the name. So, I went and Googled the name and said just his name and lyrics. And just about every song I could find was just something in there was filth. Something in there was just worldliness. Something in there was just them wanting to do sin with somebody, them either drinking alcohol in the song, something in every song was inappropriate. And I was just shocked that it was just that full of sin. And that's what they were listening to. You know, so that got me convicted like, hey, I need to teach on music. I got to teach on music. And so I didn't know a whole lot about music. I'm not, you know, I didn't major in music. Didn't, you know, I, 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 I struggle in this area to know how to even sing along in a song at the right parts. But I bought a bunch of, bunch of books on music and started studying music. And I studied that for a long time before I even brought my first lesson on that for the teens. But we ended up having five weeks in a row lesson on music and setting standards for our music biblically. Not just because Brother Keith says so. You know, I gave him Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse. This is why you should have this standard in your music. And then at the end of it, the fifth one, we had, I gave him a chart about 10, 11 verses on there, and had them ask a question based on that verse. Apply that to your music. And so if you check yes on all these, it's appropriate. You can listen. One no, you violated Scripture. You can't listen to it. So they were able to apply that to their music. And we did that. We had all kinds of different music types. We asked, I asked them, give me a type of music. We use that type of music. Give me a song. Give me an artist. And we applied just Scripture. That's it. Not what Brother Keith said. Just Scripture to that music. And we were able to show by the Bible if it was right or if it was wrong to listen to. So that was a very good learning experience for me and for them. But 1 Corinthians 10:31 tells us, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You can kind of simplify that and just say is that music you're listening to, can you say that music you listen to glorifies God? Does it glorify God? If it doesn't. You may be consider about not listening to that music anymore. Another thing we can drift from, another area of standard conviction we can drift from, is standard of dress. I hear this a lot. Everyone's wearing it. Dressing that way would be old-fashioned. I don't want to look, you know, old-fashioned. Or wearing T-shirts with inappropriate messages on them. First Timothy two nine tells us in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly ray. Modesty and appropriateness are key to dress standards. Modesty. You guys, got to be modest, but it's also got to be appropriate. So you got to keep that in mind. Modesty and appropriateness are key to dress standards. So those are two ways that we can drift from. Two standards, two convictions that we can drift away from. Another one is dating standards or moral standards. We can drift away from that standard, that conviction. I hear this. It's okay. We're in love or nothing will happen. We got it under control. First Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7.1. If you want to go ahead and turn there with me, First Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7.1. Familiar verse. First Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians one. First Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7.1 says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That is still in the Bible. That has not changed. That verse has not been removed. That needs to be our standard for our dating. It needs to be standard. First Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7.1 is still in the Bible. I want you to turn there specifically so you could see with me, it's still there. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. God said it. We should follow it. We should expect it and we should enforce it of our young people. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. All right, so we've looked at steadfastness. We looked at unmovable. Now let's look at abounding. We need to always be abounding with our work of faith. We must make an active physical response to our faith. In other words, faith requires of us some work, some effort, some living it out. You can't just sit out your faith. You've got to live out your faith. Notice Paul tells us to be always abounding, not just occasionally or when I'm asked, but he tells us to be always abounding in what? In the work of the Lord. This means it is a lifestyle of actively serving the Lord in some capacity. The Bible teaches that a Christian is created to walk in good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, with God hath before ordained that we should walk in them, created unto good works that we should walk in them, ordained that we should walk in them. Titus 2.7 says, In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. So we have created unto good works, ordained that we should walk in them. Now we've got a pattern of good works, all talking about Christians. And let our ears also learn to maintain good works, for necessary uses that we be not unfruitful. So we are, to, we are created unto good works. We are ordained to walk in good works. We are to show a pattern of good works. And we are to maintain good works. The Bible tells us to walk in good works shows our lives should be showing a pattern of good works. The Bible tells us that we should be maintaining good works in our life. And 1 Corinthians 15, 58 tells us we should be abounding in works for Christ. The Bible tells us to walk, show a pattern, maintain, and abound in the work of the Lord. I don't think the Bible could be any clearer on this subject. We all need to be busy about the work of Christ in our life and in our church. We need to be abounding in the work of the Lord. next thing I want to talk about is apathy. I've noticed there is a problem of apathy and many Christian teens and adults today. Apathy means is you're just basically content to not care much, content to not do much. Well, we're instructed here to always abound. Abounding is the direct opposite of apathy. We're going to be abounding in the work of the Lord, not have apathy towards the work of the Lord. We're all commanded to abound in the work of the Lord. We should be actively serving Him. If you're abounding in the work of the Lord, you're going to be actively serving the Lord. So if we are to be abounding in the work of the Lord, What exactly is the work we are to be abounding in? That that, that gives us another question. Notice this verse says work of the Lord. Make sure you're doing the work of the Lord. And not just the work for you that you want to do for the Lord. Make sure that work is what the Lord wants you to do for him. Find a need in the church. You should be doing that need. not coming up with an idea unless, you know, it's something of the Lord. But don't just say do something that you want to do. Do something that the Lord needs you to do. Do the work of the Lord, not the work of you that you want to apply to the Lord. A way we can do in the work of the Lord that we know for sure we're doing something that the Lord wants us all to do. Visitation. Visitation blitz. Next visitation blitz, we could all go out on that. We're doing the work of the Lord. We know we're all supposed to be doing that. So that's an easy thing we could all do to make sure we're doing the work of the Lord. So what is the work of the Lord we are to abound in? Second Corinthians eight seven tells us therefore as ye abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us see that ye abound in this grace also so we are to abound in faith utterance knowledge diligence and love faith here is mentioned first because it is the foundation of all the others Hebrews eleven six tells us but without faith it is impossible to please him for he cometh to God for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You first need faith. To abound in any other work, to abound in anything for the Lord, you need faith. You first need to make sure you are a Christian to be able to abound in the work of the Lord. You need to make sure you've accepted Christ as your Savior like Brother Joe has and demonstrated that and testified with his baptism tonight. Amen. Make sure you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Make sure you've repented from your sin and turned to the Lord. We have to make sure we've accepted Christ as our Savior in order as, in order to ever do any, any abounding in any works for the Lord. and to make sure we've accepted Christ as our Savior. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Make sure you have accepted that free gift of Christ, that free gift of salvation. We need to always be building up our faith in him. Jude 20.21 20, tells us, But ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keeping yourselves in love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. It is through accepting Jesus Christ by faith that we can get that eternal life that we can build up our faith. We need to have him as our Savior first in order to build up our faith. So faith, faith is the foundation. Faith, we should be abounding in faith. Next thing it tells us to, to abound in here is utterance. So the Bible here seems to be saying that we are to abound in our talking, if you look at it that way. You know, I think a, a couple of people here might be abounding too much in that in that, uh utterance. Might be uh, claiming that part of that verse and just running. And not, 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 not in context, but hey, this, this suits me. I'm running. I'm going. And I think we have a couple of those in that helpers in 2020 that kind of claim that verse too, but not going to mention any names. But abounding in utterance. But what Paul is really saying here is not abounding in talking so much. He's saying abounding in sharing our faith, uttering our faith, sharing our faith. So we're to abound in sharing our faith. Frequently share our faith. Frequently witness to others about Christ. We're to abound in witnessing to the lost. Are you abounding in this? I know this is something I need to work on to be abounding in. We all need to work on, I believe, in abounding in witness to the lost. We are to abound in it, but that's something I know we all could say, we all need to work on abounding and witnessing to the lost. The Bible tells us this is a wise thing to do also. We are commanded to abound in it, and it's also a wise thing to do. Proverbs 11:30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. He that winneth souls is wise. So we all need to work on abounding more in the utterance, in the sharing of our faith. This is a work for Christ we are to abound in. Jesus clearly told us what his work was. We are to abound in the work of the Lord. Jesus told us what his work was. He says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19, 10. Remember, we are told we need to be abounding in the work of the Lord. His work is seeking and saving that which is lost. Jesus entrusted this seeking and saving to us. Mark 16, 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Us, we, we need to be seeking and saving the lost. We need to be abounding in this utterance of sharing our faith, of witnessing. Jesus did not ask us to share the gospel. He commanded us to share the gospel. This is not supposed to be optional. This is supposed to be something we're all doing. We're all supposed to be abounding in sharing the gospel. All abounding in witnessing to others. We should all be abounding in these blitzes. We should all be abounding in visitation for the church. We should all be abounding in sharing the gospel. It's not a suggestion. It was a commandment. All Christians not only are commanded, but all Christians are specifically called out to proclaim the gospel. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. They should show forth the praises of him, Who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? 1 Peter 2.9 We are a chosen generation and we are called out. We are required, we are told, we are commanded, we are expected to proclaim the gospel, to share the gospel. We are all instructed to prepare ourselves to share the gospel. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We to always be ready to give an answer. Always be ready to share the gospel. Always be ready to point someone to Christ. So if we're always to be ready... Next question is, are you ready? Are you prepared to share the gospel? Are you ready to share the gospel? Are you ready to point someone to Christ? We're told we we'll are always be ready. We're told we'll be doing it. It's a command to be doing it. And we're told we're supposed to be ready to do it at any time. Be always ready to give an answer to any man that asketh you a reason. of well, The hope that is in you is meekness and fear. We're supposed to be ready to give that answer. Are you prepared to share the gospel? And if you're not prepared, are you preparing yourself to share the gospel? You need to be either, either prepared or preparing yourself to share the gospel. Then we need to be going out... In sharing the gospel so you can clearly see God expects us to abound in sharing the gospel next thing we're supposed to abound in is knowledge salvation is by faith but you must first hear the gospel and have knowledge of it to accept the free gift of salvation Romans 10 17 so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God we have to have knowledge of it to be able to accept it by faith our primary motivation in studying God's word in order to abound in this knowledge of him is to please him it should not be our own pride in maybe knowing one more Bible fact than the other guy. It should be to please God. We should be abounding in studying God's word to please God, to please him. Second Corinthians 5, 9, Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Our primary motivation, getting to know him. We should be gaining knowledge of God so we can grow in our relationship to him. The more you know someone, the closer you become to them. The same thing should happen with our relationship with God. It should be a growing relationship. Next thing, diligence. We are to bound in diligence. God expects us to be diligently working and living for him. Colossians 3:23, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. God never expects less than our best for him. Ecclesiastes 9:10, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might; for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whether thou goest. Be diligent. Luke 14:27. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. God expects us to be diligently serving him in all areas of our life. final thing we're supposed to be being abounding in is love. Faith is our foundation. Faith was the first one mentioned. Faith is what we build everything else on. Build everything else on faith. We build our work for the Lord on faith. And love is the motivation to do our work of the Lord. Love for God. Love for brethren, love for the lost sinners of the world—that should be our motivation for doing the work of the Lord. First John 4.8 He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Love will motivate us to abound in all things. Loving God creates faith. Loving our neighbor causes us to spread the gospel to our neighbor. Loving God wants us to causes us to increase in our knowledge, want to get to know Him, to know Him better. Loving God makes us want to serve Him diligently. Faith is the foundation, love is the motivation for abounding in the work of the Lord. I want you to turn to, me one more, to Acts chapter 20. We're going to look at one more passage of Scripture, then we're going to close. Acts chapter 20, look at starting in verse 17. Acts chapter 20 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Um, it's, uh, it's about Paul. He's, he's heading towards Jerusalem. He's, he doesn't know if he may be executed in Jerusalem, in prison in Jerusalem. He doesn't know what the future holds for him, but he knows he believes this is probably the last time he's going to be seeing these people. He wants to exhort them, encourage them to stay faithful to God. He's also kind of talking about what has happened in his ministry as he's been ministering to these people, You know how he's, how he's done everything he could possibly do to win them, to minister to them, to serve God. He's kind of looking back on his life of serving God and looking forward to what he believes will be his death coming soon. So you want to pick up in verse 17, it says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And that when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you in all seasons. "'Serving the Lord with all humi- humility of mind, "'and with many tears and temptations, "'which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews, "'and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, "'but have showed you and taught you publicly, "'and from house to house, "'testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, "'repentance towards God, "'and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. "'And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, "'not knowing the things that shall befall me there.' Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Notice again in verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait, of the Jews. Now look at the beginning of verse 24. But none of these things move me. Paul lived out verse 58. Paul was steadfast. Paul was unmovable. Paul was always abounding in the work of the Lord. Will you be like that? Do you want to be like that? Surrender to the Lord and ask him to mold you into that fashion. Will you determine to be steadfast? Will you make a decision to be unmovable in your faith? Unmovable in your standards. Unmovable in your convictions. Will you possibly make a decision tonight to establish some convictions on dress, on music, on music? On relationship, or maybe recomm- recommit yourself to convictions you might have drifted away from. We need to be, our goal for our life should be to live out 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We should want to live out 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Will you be able to say what Paul said at the close of his life? I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Well, you will be, you will commit to living out Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. Let's pray.